This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and taste like a milkshake without all the crap. I heard this term once on a podcast. It's the bipolar ape and humans are the bipolar ape. Like we are capable of acts of such bravery and acts of such cowardice from one moment to the next, you know? And I think that understanding that allows you to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, you know, and also just understand we're just this like amalgamation of programming from genetics and from nature and nurture. And of course, we're going to sometimes do terrible things. And of course, sometimes we're going to do amazing things. I just trip out sometimes on how polarizing these qualities can be in people, you know, the bravery and the cowardice and just like how extreme those two things can be in a single person, you know, like some of the things that my dad has done on both ends of that spectrum. I mean, you see it all the time, like in celebrities and public figures and politicians and stuff. Like obviously Trump, I'm assuming, <laughs> we both think that Trump is like one of the most vile human beings that we've ever looked at or heard speak. but. He really does like bring a certain group of people together, you know? I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but maybe some of those people feel less alone or something. And maybe Trump's a bad example of that, but. <laughs> no, I like where this is <laughs> But there are some people who can display qualities so far to either end of the, I guess, quote unquote, like good, bad, positive, negative spectrum. And oftentimes you see that, like you see people who can really bring people together and can really tear people apart and can 
be generous, but also really selfish. And yeah, I mean, that's just like part of being human. And it's a really good reminder that at the end of the day, in the moral domain, we aren't the worst things we've done. And we're also not the best things we've done. Ethan's understanding of this comes from 36 years of life, observing and questioning individual internalizations and allowing himself the space to undefine his belief system to better reflect who he is outside of societal norms and conditioning. I feel like most people, especially when they're looking at themselves, they tend to focus more on the worst things. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I certainly do at times. You know, it's like on one end, you're like, oh, I'm so awesome. And then there's like this self-admiration that happens. And then on the other end, there's like, oh, I'm such a piece. Like, look at all these horrible things that I've done, you know? Yeah, that's something I really wanted to ask you about because you've talked about this self-criticism and tell me if that's not accurate. But what is your relationship with these feelings and thoughts? I mean, I think that they're like most other feelings and thoughts, like they arise and they disappear, like the tide. I think that I have a sort of natural disposition toward self-criticism and self-hate, like I've observed it a lot in my parents, especially my mom, and um, I think that there are people that are born with like different baselines of joy and happiness and, you know, maybe even other qualities like narcissism, like self-admiration, like self-criticism, like anxiety, blah, blah, blah. And I think that I was unfortunately, or maybe not unfortunately, was born with a healthy dose of this sort of self-criticism, self-hate cocktail. And, you know, I like to think of it that way because I think people are so fixated on using these labels that have definitions and they're so sort of rigid and people and people's chemistry, they're just so complicated. Like, okay, maybe there have been times in my life where I've been depressed. Maybe depression is like an ongoing thing for me, but I don't know if I want to be grouped in with everyone else that way, you know? Like my sort of muck that I deal with is so unique to me. And when I say the word depression in my head, I don't know if I relate to it that strongly. I don't, I guess I don't even really know what it means. Like, I don't think, oh yeah, depression, that's what I have. It's more like, well, it sort of feels like this and I can describe it in 100 to 1000 words, but just one word is like completely insufficient. I've always felt like a certain darkness, I guess, even when I was a kid. But I think like depending on what's going on in my life, obviously, the self-hate, self-criticism stuff can feel stronger or weaker. And like I said, some of that is just like my natural disposition. But I think that the positive side of that is that it's helped me become a sensitive human being and develop capability to empathize with others and sympathize with others and be a good active listener and sit with other people's inconvenient feelings um, because I've had to spend so much time sitting with my own. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirt Bike Climbers. Here's the show.
Is it is it the ones in front of my house? I don't know. Are you one time? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely those. Sorry, we got so many high demands right now. That's my mom. Hi. How are you? This I'm is Kathy. Kathy. Hi, no, you're fine. Oh, I love it. Your house is so beautiful, by the way. I rolled up and I was like, this is such a beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. My mom is beaming with pride right now because she she really is pride proud of the house. <laughs> it was nice to meet you. Of course, my mom comes out with a cat in her arms. You know, the podcast really does have a lot of high demands these days. Like, can you please rubber band your wind chimes and also bring your mom's cat to the recording sesh? You might already know who Ethan Pringle is. He's a professional rock climber based out of California, and he's done some pretty impressive things both on and off the wall. Like one time, he rode an inflatable pizza off of an iceberg. But the thing that stood out to us the most about him over the years is his unreserved honesty. And not just his online candor, but how he carries himself in all corners of life. As we do with all of our interviews, we met in person. So I hit a Pinoy in the summer of 2021. My name is Ethan Pringle. I am from San Francisco, California. And what am I doing in life? <laughs> well, I just spent most of the summer here in California, and now I'm headed off to Europe for a month. When I first started doing interviews, I used to ask people to describe themselves. But I think it was kind of halfway through the second year of podcasting, 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 that I thought it would be kind of cool, kind of interesting to ask people how somebody close to them would describe their character instead. And I started doing this because we probably see ourselves in a totally different light. The shift in answers I started getting was kind of awesome. <laughs> oh boy. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, at the risk of sounding conceited or narcissistic, here we go. <laughs> I think um, the person that I'm thinking of would describe me as thoughtful, um, as sensitive, gentle, and hopefully generous, I guess. Um, I actually just got a note today with some of those words in it, so I have physical proof that someone out there thinks those things of me, actually, but I would say that seems pretty accurate. So my identity, do you want adjectives or do you want, like, building blocks or... I mean, I, I feel like I put myself out there as accurately as possible on social media. But then again, like, we're always kind of putting our best foot forward, or we're always sort of portraying ourselves in the way that we want to be seen by other people. But um, I think one part of my life that I have talked about on social media, but I don't put it out there a ton, is that I've been a caregiver for my dad for the last eight years, like part-time. It's not like, you know, I'm his only caregiver. In fact, I only go, especially these days, I only go every once in a while. But for a long time, for a good number of years, I went pretty often, weekly. And yeah, I think that that has become a big part of my identity. But before that, 
I grew up in the city in San Francisco, which is a beautiful and diverse city, and that definitely shaped me a lot. And also was lucky enough to spend a ton of time in nature, in the outdoors, you know, camping, hiking, biking, snowboarding, and then climbing. And those experiences really shaped me. But I think they partially and other factors too made me kind of hate school. <laughs> I mean, being stuck in a classroom just always paled in comparison to like being outside and doing things with my body and interacting with nature and stuff. And I was always like a fairly irresponsible student, but fortunately I fell in love with reading. So that kind of saved my brain in a way. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> I started a book in Costa Rica that I didn't finish. Um, but it's one of Jasmine's favorite books. It's called The Glass Castle. It's actually like a memoir written by this woman who had a really unconventional upbringing where her parents sort of were these crazy kind of like eccentric people who they were almost like drifters. They went from one town to another around the Western United States. And a lot of these towns actually are, are places that you would recognize being a climber, almost like truck stop towns in the middle of nowhere but I haven't finished that book yet. I haven't been carving out a ton of time for reading lately. Maybe that's something you hear a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, my dad was always really pretty gregarious and outgoing, always super friendly with everybody. He was a elementary school teacher for 35 years in San Francisco. And I think for the students that were really attentive and were there to like learn and, you know, be good students, like he was their favorite. And then for the students who like cut up a lot, <laughs> who were maybe more a little bit more like me, like he was maybe like their least favorite because he could be sort of a disciplinarian. But he was always super adventurous. You know, he by across Europe I think after he graduated high school and he worked at a hospital in Germany so he knew a lot of German and then he did a year in the Peace Corps maybe two years in the Peace Corps in Venezuela so he's fluent in Spanish and I don't know I mean later in life he would just stand outside of our house and like strike up conversations with random people or you know if he went on a bike ride to the Embarcadero he would just meet some random tourist people and Maybe if one of them was like looking for a place to stay in San Francisco, they'd end up staying in our house or something, you know? Um, so he was always like really outgoing and really friendly. Um, you know, I think he showed me how to move through the world with confidence, um, especially like in the outdoors, but just interacting with people too. I think he gave me some of my first examples of what taking responsibility and apologizing when you've done something wrong look like. So that was like a valuable and impactful gift that he gave me. And um, when I was six, I really wanted to try snowboarding. And this was at a time where they just didn't even make equipment for kids my age. Snowboarding was so new that there were just no other six-year-olds snowboarding, but I really wanted to try it. And I asked him if we could go, and it was like the middle of the week, you know, and he taught at the same school that I went to. And he was just like, sure, let's go, let's go tomorrow. And he called in sick, got a substitute teacher, and we both went to Tahoe for the day together. And both of us had our first day of snowboarding together. And so he was just like that kind of dad, you know? I mean, he was amazing, like on the scale of like kind of deadbeat dads to like amazing dads, like he was pretty high up there. Um, and of course, you know, he, 
grew up in the 50s, so he kind of came from that era of men where, you know, they don't really share their feelings that readily, and they're more avoiders than sharers, and, you know, he did a fair amount of that sadly, and I've spent my whole life with him, and in some ways I feel like I barely know him. You know, I feel like some parts of himself he will just never show to anybody, which is obviously super tragic, and I can't imagine how, you know, isolating that is. And um, I think that much later on in life, I think it sort of helped him develop like a little bit of a victim complex, but, um, you know, I saw him bottling up emotion, I saw him bottling up anger, and so I had some amazing examples of what a man can look like, and I had some, you know, sort of less desirable examples, but overall I'm just, I'm so thankful that I had him as a dad. The old adage that being vulnerable is weak still pervades, and yet it's an interesting time. More and more men are turning inward to deconstruct some of their programming and the persistent idea that feelings are a female thing. Historically, men have been taught to reject things like sensitivity or expression of emotion, which ultimately leaves them without the tools to cope with internalized anger. These traits inevitably get passed down for generations. So where does one even begin to break these kinds of cycles? Because it's almost naive to believe that simply telling guys it's okay to cry would be enough to undo generations of enculturation. Because self-examination sucks. And vulnerability can be downright ugly. And I'm not talking about controlled vulnerability, like when we open up just enough to give people a small glimpse, but in actuality, are holding back in fear of oversharing or judgment. I'm talking about the stuff that will split you open and involve a lot of ugly crying and maybe probably therapy. But Ethan knows this because growing up, he had witnessed two sides of his father. I feel like I had some examples of what men can be capable of, like some really positive examples, and I had some examples of maybe things to avoid as a man, like bottling up your anger and um, bottling up emotion and stuff, and I've noticed that I have a little bit of that programming in, in me too, but I didn't really have the language or the capability to sort of understand how my parents were and how my dad was and like the ways in which I was being impacted by those behaviors and their own programming and stuff, and I think <laughs> being in your late 20s and 30s is all about like unpacking all of the baggage and stuff that you inherited from your parents and I think that it can be like a painful and also maybe sort of fun exercise to just like look within yourself and be like oh wow like that is where that came from and yeah I think there were definitely experiences that stood out as a kid that I really gained a lot from and I remembered them because they were so impactful but I didn't really understand like the impact that they had like taking the day off to go snowboarding or like seeing my dad offer up sincere apologies to people or seeing my dad's bravery interacting with strangers and like not being afraid to communicate but being afraid to communicate his feelings to close people yeah I think these are things that you just kind of notice when you're a kid but you don't really realize like how much of an impact they're having being introduced to the outdoors and then falling in love with climbing at a young age was like obviously one of the biggest gifts that life has ever given me and then I like to think that my dad's stroke and the sort of opening that I've experienced because of that is like the other big gift that life has given me. Before my dad's stroke 
I don't think I had ever really had cause to experience true heartbreak in like an up close and personal way. And if you allow something that tragic and that painful to sort of penetrate, it changes you in like an irreversible way. And it's sad because I feel like a lot of people, even if they have some close personal source of tragedy or heartbreak, a lot of people are so armored up against feeling sadness and feeling heartbreak that they might not even like let it penetrate. And I, I didn't, at least for the first few months after his stroke, I think I was just too busy like going through the motions of worrying about him and taking care of him and being by his side and stuff. But then eventually I, I sort of was given space and encouraged to sort of ask myself if I was okay, I sort of took a deeper look inside myself than I had ever taken before and realized that there was this whole well of emotions that I had sort of just been ignoring my whole life. And um, seeing my dad's situation and how tragic it is and just like how diminished his quality of life is sort of allowed me to look at a part of myself that I'd never seen before. Ethan's dad's stroke marked the first day of the third phase of Ethan's life, as he likes to call it. The second phase was when he discovered climbing, and the trajectory of his life changed forever. And then it changed again, after he discovered his dad on the floor of his bedroom, having suffered a massive right hemisphere stroke on the evening of September 4th, 2013. Ethan wrote that the paradox of suffering is that in order to be released from it, we have to first accept it. Surrendering is when we open up. That's the opening he often refers to. And as it turns out, love and self-compassion are what's inside. People are so used to trying so hard to appear okay that they don't even really ask themselves that question very seriously. And um, I mean, I think that it takes a certain amount of effort to sort of look within your heart and feel what an impact life has had on you and maybe what an impact you've had on yourself. And I'd never really like given myself this sort of compassion that I was forced to when I was forced to give my dad that same compassion or whatever, you know, that opening that I experienced, um, that I experience every time, every time I allow myself to feel how tragic my dad's situation is. That's a feeling that I just didn't know existed before. But that's like as close to true love as I've ever felt. I think that the most in love with the universe that I have ever been is when I can just feel like the impermanence of it all, you know, and the sadness of it all. And it's all sitting right there in the same place. And what I'm dealing with is chronic grief. Um, it's not like I really had like that term before, but you know, in most ways, like he, he's gone, you know, like he lost the use of his body and the better part of his mind and most of his humor and, um, every month, every year, a little bit more of him slips away. And it's, it's just like, he's still there with physical presence, but beyond that, there's like not much of him left. and. And I, that's something that, <clears throat> that I get to sit with every day if I want to, which yeah, is a gift. I mean, sometimes going through the motions of taking care of him or just feeling sort of like how hopeless his situation is 
can be difficult, but the other side of that is that it it's opened me up like nothing else has. And understanding the ways that he's influenced me both positively and negatively and carrying on some of the better qualities that he lived when he was able to do that, you know, which I think one of his biggest values was just kindness, just being kind to other people. So I think that's something that he passed on to me and that's one way that I can honor him is just to be kind to other people and no matter who they are, you know, if it's a stranger or if it's a close person and you know, talking to strangers and interacting with strangers and just not being afraid to like talk to people and say hi to people and include people in the conversation, I think is another way that I can honor him. And yeah, just making people feel less alone, I guess. And, and also just like not being so afraid in life, you know, like he was one of the first examples of someone that I saw living with a lot of bravery, you know, and he was just so unafraid to snowboard through the trees on powder days or like get on his bike and ride for a really long way or get on his windsurfer and ride into the windiest conditions in San Francisco Bay and just living with that sort of bravery, I think is another way to honor him. And, you know, in some ways he was like a superhero to me. And now that I've gotten older and I've become an adult and I can sort of look back on some of the things that happened when I was a kid, you know, there's stuff that I just can't talk about in like a public sphere because he could be monstrous. And I think that's so human, you know? And there's certain things that when I found out, I was like, wow, for a moment here, I don't know if I can keep loving this person. And that moment passes and I say, of course I can. But this idea that someone can be so brave, but also, you know, maybe cowardly in some ways or open to strangers, but also so closed off in other ways or like do really generous things for other people, but also like do really monstrous things to other people. And I think that that's just like so human. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate. Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. What else am I doing? <laughs> I'm making a film project right now. Blake is a climbing partner of mine and one of my first friends in Flagstaff, someone that I'm really close to. And Blake at one point asked me to come over to the tourist home, which is a coffee shop in Flagstaff. And he was like, so I wanted to pitch a film idea to you. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. And he's like, so I want to make a film. And I was like, about what? And he's like, about you. And I was like, oh. 
That's interesting. And at the time we thought it was going to be this really small thing. Like I was like, oh, he's going to make this like 10 minute film about me rock climbing. And that sounds cool. And I kind of agreed to do it because I was kind of like exploring what it would mean to be more open about my identity, especially in the climbing world. And I thought it could be a cool way to just be a little bit more visible and share that with other people. And it's turned into a big thing now. It's not a 10 minute film. And I think that because there's a really big exploration process with gender when you're trans, that sometimes people will think that what you're trying to communicate is who you are, when really you're just communicating another aspect of what you are. It sounds kind of out there, like nebulous, but it actually isn't. It's just like everyone knows they have just like a core human inside of them that doesn't need anything else to define it. Go to patagonia.com slash climbing or visit the Patagonia YouTube channel to watch They Them streaming online now. What's the definition of chronic grief? I think chronic grief is a specific kind of grief that stems from a source in your life that is like constant, you know? And for me, it's my dad's situation after his big stroke in 2013, where he was left wheelchair bound and bedridden at this point. But it's a loss that you're reminded of every day. If like a loved one passes away, you feel grief and it might even be chronic, especially if there's like constant reminders of the person or if like you've had a kid together or something. And I don't know, maybe, maybe all grief is chronic. Like I know a lot of really wise people who study this stuff say that you don't move past grief, you move through it, you move with it, you like learn to live with it and stuff. So maybe in that way, like all grief is chronic. But for me, I've bared witness to my dad's situation for the past eight years, which is extremely tragic to me because, you know, he's my dad and I love him. And if I care to think about his situation acutely, I'm always brought to tears by it. And after he passes, that might not be the case as often because when I think about him and I think about his situation, I think about him alive, but in this really diminished state. And um, when someone passes, obviously it's sad and people grieve and maybe that grief lasts a lifetime and they carry it with them forever. But I think when you have that source that's like constant, I don't know, it's a little bit different. I also trip out about how when I do think about him, I am projecting and I don't really know what it's like to be in his body and in his mind and just be trapped in those places. But what breaks my heart, the tragic part is the imagination of it, you know, like the thought of what it could be like. And I'm sure it's different. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's not as bad. And I'm like reacting to this story that I'm totally just imagining. I mean, obviously I can like see him in front of me and he's like my child now. He's like a 200 pound baby basically. <laughs> and like he gets tired and he like gives up and it's extremely heartbreaking. But I'm also just like, maybe it's not as bad. Like maybe he's so diminished that he just can't even like tell how bad it is or something, you know? 
I actually had a grief counselor who I haven't seen in a little while. I might start talking to her again. And I was seeing her remotely for a while, and then I was seeing her in person for a while. And she's amazing. I mean, it's funny. We have sort of similar situations. Her husband got into a car accident, and now he's, I think he's a paraplegic. And she is a caregiver for him, not quite like his main caregiver, but always there for him and stuff, obviously. But she does these like grief rituals and like events surrounding grief and just like personal counseling and stuff. And it's been great to talk to her. Although I feel like a lot of what we talk about ends up being like relationship stuff. And like, <laughs> of course, you know, like the more immediate stressors. And I don't think I have the same hesitancy toward it that a lot of men do or especially like older men or whatever or just people in general I mean I feel like for a lot of people going to therapy feels like admitting that you have a weakness or something like that and I, I really don't think that but I think a lot of the time when you need therapy the most is when you feel the impulse to hide the most and so I think in that way therapy can feel like a big leap of faith or something, you know, because the process of finding somebody and like scheduling with them and then like opening up to them, telling them your life story. And also it's like people just have the impulse to isolate themselves when they need to be with somebody or like seek counseling the most. The annoying truth about therapy is that it doesn't fix you. I know. Then why is it so dang expensive? But it isn't like with medical treatment, where you can come up with a plan to treat and eliminate an illness. Therapy is the guide. And friends, they're great. We all need that someone who's willing to last minute ditch work and drive six and a half hours to see Kesha in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, because you cannot put a price on Kesha. But there are also a few other things to consider. Does this person have the mental capacity to have this conversation? And maybe most important of all, a reminder that a friend is not a therapist. Unless your friend is actually a therapist, in which case you might owe them dinner. But typically, these two things simply don't occupy the same space. Two scenarios can play out. If someone is always listening and absorbing all of our stress and grief, it's really hard for them to feel like they're getting their own needs met. Or a person can develop a fixer mentality. I do think that the phenomenon of people going straight to the fixing part of a conversation where one person says, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm dealing with, and the other person immediately offers up a solution is definitely like a product of the society we live in with all of its individualistic values and values around success and all of that and also just like toxic masculinity which is obviously a big part of our our society and it's funny because a couple of the romantic partners i've had tend to like be more on the fixing side when i like you know communicate my feelings and oh man it's hard for me I think that I really want the active listening treatment and it can be hard obviously in relationships, you know, that's like a whole nother dynamic, especially if the person being forced to listen is like hearing something that feels potentially threatening or like critical or whatever. That's obviously it's understandable, but I think just in general in our society, it's like so hard to find people who can simply just sit with your feelings. Jumping to the fixing part of a conversation can be an easy way to neglect our own needs. 
You can fix everything from cars to kitchen appliances, but that doesn't work with emotional problems. The easy fix-it-all approach that can come from both men and women limits our ability to relate on a deeper level. The need to get rid of negative emotions often exists out of love and not wanting to see people that we care about hurting. But for many, it just winds up feeling dismissive and most people just wanna be seen. The question is, are men more often hardwired towards the fixer trope? Is the compulsion to fix things an expression of masculinity? How do we reframe that without casting masculinity as toxic itself? Because I actually don't want to talk about toxicity. <laughs> um, I actually, I want to ask I said you, your trigger word. In addition to toxic masculinity, my other trigger words and phrases are marketing strategy, he's a nice guy, and let's circle back next week. Positive masculinity, let's talk about it. I think that it is a beautiful thing, and I think that as a society, we're probably seeing a shift toward it, but I think there's a lot of programming to undo. I mean, there's a lot of programming to first just address and talk about, you know, like that's the first step. But um, classically, it's not okay for men to admit they're wrong, so that has to change because men are wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> um, classically, a lot of this stuff is just passed down from father to son for generations and generations, but I think that we need to be teaching boys how to apologize and take responsibility when they've hurt someone's feelings, no matter how right or wrong they think they are. I think that's really, really important, and we need to be teaching boys that it's okay to feel insecure in your own skin. I think that the sort of avoiding or burying of fear and insecurity is such a big contributor to the problems that we have globally, I would say. You know, we need to be teaching boys that it's okay to feel sad, that it's okay to feel regret that it's okay to feel ashamed sometimes and that you don't have to transform those feelings into anger. But society perpetuates this this expectation that anger is acceptable, but sadness, shame, insecurity, guilt, weakness, anything but success is to be avoided at all costs, you know? And so I think that we just need to be teaching young boys how to be people, you know, how to be human beings that have emotions and that quote unquote negative emotions or inconvenient emotions are not just acceptable, but there to teach us something. It's like the ones that we're taught to avoid, basically. But Western society really encourages people in general, but men in particular, to not feel all those inconvenient emotions like sadness and guilt and insecurity. I mean, men have such a hard time admitting they're ever insecure, but I know that there isn't a single man on earth that hasn't felt that at some point, nor is there a single man on earth that hasn't felt fear. But we're just taught to be right all the time, and basically we're taught that anger is okay, so all of these other emotions that are sort of weak and not manly and maybe feminine or whatever, transform into anger and one of the things that sort of bugs me about American culture in general is this like shaming thing and people aren't gonna want to change if you tell them that the way they are isn't okay they're just gonna get defensive especially for like men we have to like establish that the way we are is 
you know, maybe kind of fucked up and like damaging to society because then we can talk about it and we can start to address things and we can do the work to to undo some of this programming. And I think that it's still a conversation that people are largely avoiding, that society is largely avoiding, but it would do well to address it sooner rather than later because I feel like a lot of the problems that society faces stems from these issues, stem from people, but definitely particularly men, avoiding feeling anything but pride or rage, basically and it makes men ignorant assholes, basically, to say it bluntly. Patriarchal norms affect all genders, male, female, and non-binary. And while many of us outwardly condemn toxic masculinity and the patriarchy that causes it, the ideology has been so deeply conditioned within that it can be hard to recognize, such as we're not always as ready as we think we are to receive a man who's fully open and expressive of his emotions. We say we want the nice guy, a sensitive guy, but then he's too emotional. And it's because women are just as conditioned to accept harmful and cultural norms. But because women can play a role in patriarchy, it also means that we have an opportunity to change it. Hey ladies, what's up? Breaking down the patriarchy can look like a lot of things. It can be protests for change or sitting with our favorite guys and just making space for their emotions. But breaking down these dynamics starts within. And that means each of us checking ourselves to recognize some of our own programming and unconscious bias. Men aren't the only ones that have programming of toxic masculinity. Like I know plenty of girls who have some of those same qualities and it's just rampant throughout humanity. So it's in all of us. And having examples of men that can behave in a different way and maybe display qualities that are like classically more feminine but are actually just like more human would be helpful, you know, because it's just crazy, yeah, like how deep the programming goes. It's in me, it's in every guy that I know, and I think that a good first step would just be allowing men to like say I love you to each other and give each other hugs and like genuinely be there for each other, being better active listeners, like being more sensitive to one another's needs, like being more sensitive to one another's feelings, admitting that they have feelings in the first place. You know, like these are all things that we should be doing. In October 2020, Carlo Traversi completed the first ascent of Empath, a slightly overhanging 65-foot-tall granite climb in the Tahoe region. Everything about the climb, from the rock to getting to it, is distinctively remarkable. But perhaps the most unique thing about it is in its name. Carlo says that an empath is rare in today's world, and that couldn't ring more true. In some small way, I hope the name inspires more people to work towards being more empathetic of others. Empath is in the El Dorado National Forest, and you drive up this ridge sort of thing, and it kind of feels like the landscape drops off and opens up to either side. So it's like rock and forest as far as the eye can see, and then some like alpine peaks in the background. And kind of before you get to the real like alpine feeling area, you pull off the main road and drive on this dirt road a little bit through the forest and there's like boulders everywhere, um, big and small. And 
the hike takes you through forest with these tall redwoods and pines and there's this beautiful river at the bottom of this valley and it's kind of at the bottom of this like canyon thing and then empath itself like the wall that it's on is sort of north facing and i think it retains water for a lot longer than it otherwise would like i think because of that the quality of the rock on that cliff is really bullet and empath itself sits on this kind of little prow of overhanging rock with all these really amazing crack water runnel things that streak down the face and so it's almost like these slopey cracks and like tufa pinch type of features and as soon as you pull off the ground it's kind of in your face and it's sustained but at the top the angle steepens a little bit and there aren't any rests for like 20 feet straight or something and that was definitely my crux was like from the last rest to the anchor and that was also like where I fell when I fell into the tree and um, broke the tree branch with my leg. <laughs> Yeah, that was like a little bit of a traumatic event. I think I actually had a sort of profound thought about it afterwards, which was that it was probably one of the more physically traumatic events that's happened to me in my adult life. Like I hit the tree branch so hard that I snapped it off at its base and it was probably like almost 10, 15 feet long and maybe three or four inches in diameter and just totally like karate chopped it off with my shin so hard that I thought I broke my shin. And you know, my knee was all messed up and I got to the ground and I was like hyperventilating cause I was in so much pain. and. But it only lasted maybe five, 10 minutes at most. And then I was okay. I was like, oh, okay, I, my shin's not broken. I can weight my leg. I packed up all my things and I hiked out. But I was tripping out about how much emotional pain I've inflicted on myself and how, how much greater of a toll that has taken on me in my life than the physical pain that I've experienced. Like if that is the extent of my physical pain, like that was nothing, it lasted five, 10 minutes, you know? But the like psychological trauma that I've inflicted on myself over the course of my life is just like so, so, so much greater than that. And I mean, I think the key part of that revelation is that it's sort of self-inflicted to the extent that we even have any control over ourselves. I think that the thought is, this is something that I'm doing to myself. And maybe that's something to pay attention to. Maybe that's something to work on, you know? Maybe like finding ways to lessen the, the pain that I inflict on myself should be a priority in my life. It's super remote. You do walk through a bouldering area to get there, but the boulders stop after 10 minutes of hiking and then you hike another I don't know, 25 minutes to get to the crag. So it's pretty out there. Like there's nobody else out there really. And I do know that these two Tahoe root developers, I guess they've kind of developed roots all throughout the Sierra. A lot of like harder sport route type of things. They stumbled upon this cliff 20 years ago and they looked up at the roots and they were like, this is just beyond us right now. We're not capable of climbing these things. And they just left it completely untouched. And then 20 years later, Jimmy Webb is just like doing his thing, which is just like going exploring for boulders like everywhere, <laughs> you know, hiking miles and miles. And he stumbles upon the cliff looking for boulders. And he's like, oh my God, this is like one of the sickest sport routes I've ever seen. Like this has to be bolted. 
but he's like primarily a boulder. He was probably occupied with other projects at the time, and he didn't get around to bolting it right away. He told um, his buddy Dave Wetmore about it. Dave told Carlo about it. Carlo and Dave hiked out to the crag, and Carlo ended up bolting it. So Jimmy found it, Carlo bolted it and cleaned it and stuff, and then Jimmy, Carlo, and Daniel all kind of worked on it together, and Carlo ended up sending it first. Jimmy and Daniel ended up sending it soon after that, and then Nathaniel Coleman did it pretty quick too, in quick succession. And of course, like as soon as I saw photos, I was like, oh my God, that's like incredible. It's like so unique, you know, like this bullet granite overhanging face with tufa pinches and like slopey cracks. Like I could not think of a more perfect route than that. So I was like chomping at the bit to try it, of course. And I heard Keenan was super psyched to try it. Keenan got fairly close last summer when those guys were working on it. And then this summer it was like his main, or like spring, it was his main priority. And so he went and like wrapped in and actually like brushed some of the snow off the top of the crag so that it would dry up faster. And it was also like a really light snow year. I think in sort of pre-global warming times, there's almost no way that you could climb on it in the spring because there's so much snow. The top of the crag is like this giant dome, so all the water will just like funnel right down onto Empath, which is why it's like such perfect rock. But it was a really light snow year this year. Keenan went and shoveled off some of the snow, so we got to start trying it like in, I don't know, late April, early May. And it was like perfect conditions when we first started trying it. So Carlo and Jimmy and those guys, I guess they threw out the grade of 15A and then Black Diamond sort of like made this whole video around the ascent, around Carlo's ascent. And, you know, so this like 15A grade had really been established and none of the other ascensionists disputed it. But I kind of had an idea in the back of my head, like, oh, it seems like kind of a crack climbing spots and like maybe it suits me because it's like granite cracks and stuff. And that's something that I have a fair amount of experience with. And sure enough, I got there. The conditions really good. And I climbed within like six feet of the anchors on my third day. But then I fell in the tree and like... <laughs> you know, sprained my MCL, didn't climb at all for like two weeks. And, you know, I had some other like emotional stuff going on, some like relationship stuff going on. And it was like, it was actually really hard. Like when I went back to the route, I was super scared and I've rarely felt so scared and insecure on a rock climb. But when I went back to empath after falling in the tree, just like with everything I was dealing with in life and like the time that I had kind of taken off from it, it had gotten warmer, et cetera, et cetera. I was so nervous on the route and you know there's some spots where you skip a draw or two here and there and actual groundfall potential plus there's like the potential of falling in the tree like I was just a basket case The one limb that I fell on got completely lopped off and then I think Keenan fell a little bit lower and he like uppercutted another limb off with his arm. He was like totally fine, but those were the two biggest hazards and they were gone. But just still like you can feel the, like after I fell in the tree, I could just like feel it behind me. And I would get up around that same spot on the root from the ground and I would just be so like wigged out and I would let go. And I was kind of like falling all over the root too and just feeling like a, like a nervous wreck. Um, and it took a while to like regain that same I don't know, sense of levity that I felt when I first approached the route. I, I think I actually never quite regained it. I just sort of dialed the route so thoroughly that it dumbed down so much and I figured out all this great beta and even still it felt like a fight, but eventually I sent it. Mm -hmm. 
Whether your project is at your absolute limit or you're just climbing for yourself and for fun, it's important to remember that we bring everything with us to the crag. I'm definitely not the first person who's found some escapism in climbing, some shred of a distraction from the painful stuff in life. Some days, there's only room for the next hand, the next foot placement, body position, and breath. But the rubric that separates using climbing to escape or to reset is when we're able to come back to ourselves. Yeah, of course. I completely agree with you that, you know, we bring everything we have up the climb with us, you know, like all our baggage, all our insecurities. And sometimes that stuff can really weigh you down. You know, I think that like certain people, maybe if they have a little bit more levity in their lives or a little bit more freedom, maybe they're not quite as encumbered by baggage and insecurities and stuff. But I think throughout my adult life, it's something that I've dealt with every year, you know, like every hard project, I have some shit to address that I take with me to the crag. And, you know, the hardest projects that I've ever had have all forced me to address these things. I think the hardest things we try, they require a presence of mind and like maybe a presence of heart too. And if you're encumbered by all this baggage or insecurity and stuff, you can't really give your entire being and your entire presence to the root and therefore you just can't climb it. So you have to like address those things and like work through those things in order to get to a place where you can feel free and like feel comfortable on the wall. That's why, like, sometimes sending the stuff near our limit is so beautiful because we've finally, you know, addressed all this stuff or we've shed all this baggage or we're just, like, fighting tooth and nail to, like, get to the top and it's, like, ugly and stuff. But that's kind of beautiful, too. Even though I still have no idea what I'm doing, things are happening. And if you'd like to help out and support us, check out patreon.com, where you can sponsor us for as little as one cup of bodega coffee. It really helps keep this podcast going. And for the record, we love bodega coffee. Special shout out to Peter Darmy because he makes this thing sound good. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes. Or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time.